You are listening to The Interpreter, the podcast of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Lauren Delaney-Miller. Today on our show, we have Amy Sturgill, our Bi-State Sage Grouse Data and Communications Coordinator. Amy has an extensive background in conservation science, and her love for the wildlife of the Eastern Sierra makes this a super interesting episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, as always, I like to start with a little bit of background, and I'm curious about where you're from and how you ended up in the Eastern Sierra. Um, Well, I'm from the Central Valley in California, but I haven't lived there in a really long time. I've been in Bishop, um, I guess, since 2013, so this feels like home. And uh, I guess I originally came here for a job, um, but luckily, I guess all the other things that I love were here as well. So it's really, it's really uh, been a place that's been hard to leave. Yeah, I bet. And so I know that you're currently working as the Bi-State Sage-Grouse Data and Communications Coordinator, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit of an overview on that position. There's a few things to break down in there, but I guess we could start maybe with the Data and Communications Coordinator part of it. Um, yeah, so I am the Bi-State Sage-Grouse Data and Communications Coordinator, and it is a mouthful. Um, the position was established in 2018 and basically it was intended to facilitate this ongoing collaborative conservation effort, um, that's aimed at protecting sage-grouse populations in our area. And the position is really multifaceted, but basically my job is to bring people together to work across land ownership boundaries and to make sure that conservation actions are being implemented that, um, benefit sage-grouse and the habitat they depend upon. So funding from my position comes from a number of different stakeholders, which include federal, state, and nonprofit partners. And then that funding is funneled to ECIA, who supports my position as a hosting entity. Awesome. And so what kind of background did you bring in your, uh, to this position? I'm sure that you have quite the extensive scientific background to be able to be um, in this new position. Yeah, I've been working in wildlife biology in some capacity for about 15 years now, and I've worked with several different species, including desert tortoise, bighorn sheep, and now sage grouse. And obviously, these three species are very different, um, but one thing they have in common is that they're all kind of um, iconic species of the ecosystem they inhabit. You know, they kind of really represent the essence of a place. Um For me, when I think of the Mojave, I think of this ancient, enduring desert tortoise. And when I think of the Sierra, I think of the bighorn and their ruggedness and their adaptation to that epic environment. And the same is true for sage grouse. You know, they're kind of this beacon of the sagebrush sea that spreads across the West. And so I guess my background really has been working with these species in these places that they really belong. Um, So it's kind of been a good fit uh, in transitioning into this position. That is really cool. And I imagine that a lot of people listening maybe have heard of a sage grouse before, but it's possible that a lot of them haven't seen one. Uh, could you describe what they're like? I know that we went out and were able to see them through the spotting scope just a couple of weeks ago, but I'd like to hear more about what the sage grouse is, what it looks like, what its behavior is like, what makes them so interesting. Uh, they are really interesting birds. Um, they're pretty they're related to uh, pheasants, turkeys, partridges. They're in the Phasianidae family. Um, 
they're pretty big birds. I think females are around two and a half to uh, three and a half pounds and males are about double that size. And um, they live in the sagebrush ecosystem, um, which is the largest interconnected habitat type in the U.S. So they're found in in 11 Western states and two Canadian provinces. And one thing that's really unique about sage grouse is that sagebrush is a staple of their diet, um, which is interesting because sagebrush is actually toxic to most wildlife. You know, sagebrush hmm. has that like pungent smell because it, came, it contains this chemical that acts as a defense for the plant. But there are some animals like sage grouse who have unique digestive systems, which allow them to separate the toxins in the, from the leaves. So in the winter, sage grouse subsist almost entirely on sagebrush. And during the spring and summer months, they augment their diet with flowers and fruits and insects and things like that. But another really interesting thing about sage-grouse, and Lauren, you got to witness this a little bit when we went out together, is um, their mating rituals. So in the spring, sage-grouse gather on what are known as leks, and males do this really elaborate display to attract females to reproduce. So um, I guess to the listeners, if you haven't witnessed this, I really encourage you to get out and try to view a lek sometime, or at least look it up online. There's some cool videos because it's it's quite the display of, of nature. Yeah, I definitely never seen anything like that with the males with their big white chefs puffing out. And yeah, they're really fascinating birds. Um, okay. Yeah, and so we've covered the job part of your job and the sage-grouse part of your title. And so now I want to talk a little bit about the bi-state. Um, where's the bi-state area? Yeah, it's not really a common term that we use over here on the east side. But um, in the conservation world, what we call the bi-state is the area that's kind of situated on the California-Nevada border on the east side of the Sierra. So it extends from Carson City, um, Nevada, up in the north, down to Bishop, California, in the south. And... In total, this area contains about 1.9 million acres of sage-grouse habitat. And the sage-grouse that are found here are geographically isolated and genetically distinct. Um, they were once connected to other sage-grouse populations across the west through this corridor through the north, but over time, development and loss of habitat has isolated this population for long enough now that there's enough genetic diversity, and, or sorry, enough genetic difference um, to be considered a distinct population segment. Interesting. Um, okay. And so I imagine that for your position to exist, that there must be something that's threatening the sage grouse, right? We don't have positions like this for every animal <laughs> in our ecosystem. So there must be something going on specifically with the sage grouse that's threatening them. Yeah, there are a number of things, you know, because sage grouse populations here in the bi-state are small and isolated, they really are more susceptible to to threats and potential population declines. So there are a number of threats to sage grouse, um, including urbanization, herb, human disturbance, invasive plants, grazing and predation. But um, the highest priority threats in the bi-state are wildfire and the expansion of pin pinion and juniper into sagebrush habitat, um, both of which are really exacerbated by climate change and the prolonged droughts that we sometimes experience in this part of the world. You know, as we all know, especially after last summer, uh, large, intense wildfires are an increasing issue across the West, and the bi-state is not immune to that threat. So when these fires burn, they often burn intensely, and we lose sage-grouse habitat. And in this, in this ecosystem, um, that habitat is often really slow to recover. So that can have really serious implications for sage-grouse. Um, one of the other main things they face is conifer expansion into a sagebrush ecosystem. 
So pinyon pine, juniper, and Jeffrey pine are all native species in the bi-state, but expansion beyond historical limits due to fire suppression, historic overgrazing, and current climate conditions has really become problematic. And I think in the bi-state area, it's estimated that about 40% of the historically available sagebrush habitat has been affected by woodland expansion over the last 150 years. And when you get conifer, like pinyon and juniper, expanding into sagebrush habitat, it can be really problematic because um, it increases fire severity and size when you have that added fuel. Having um, those big plants like conifers, it really depletes soil water and nutrients. It reduces the native understory, and they often provide purchase for avian predators. So all of these things kind of add up, um, and they really affect how sage grouse select for habitat. Um, and it can cause uh, sage-grouse population declines. That is pretty interesting. And so are some of these issues unique to sage-grouse in the bi-state area, or are there similar issues facing different sage-grouse populations? You mentioned that they live in a bunch of different states and in a couple Canadian provinces as well. Yeah, there's definitely, those issues are affecting sage-grouse across the West. In the bi-state, we're pretty lucky. We don't have some of the issues that some of the other Western states have. we are, it is dry here, but it's not quite as dry as say like some of the Great Basin Ranges in Nevada. So um, wildfire hasn't been quite as bad um, as it has been in those areas. Same thing with invading cheatgrass. It's not quite as bad in the bi-state. Um, you know, it's a little bit higher elevation in the bi-state, so we do have more wet meadows. So some of that habitat degradation that occurs from loss of wet meadows isn't happening here. And one of the biggest ones that's happening across the West, it's not really happening in the bi-state to the extent that it's happening in other states, is is mineral extraction, you know, mining. Um, That is definitely impacting um, sage-grouse populations in places like Wyoming to a much further extent than it is here in the bi-state. Hmm, okay. So does any of those things warrant putting the sage grouse on the, say, endangered species list or threatened species list? That's an interesting question. So um, bi-state sage grouse have been petitioned for listing under the Endangered Species Act um, numerous times over the last 20 years. Um, most recently, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service completed an extensive re- review and determined that they weren't warranted for listing last year. And that decision was largely due to the conservation efforts that people in the bi-state have implemented to protect sage-grouse here. Um, That decision has since been challenged, so it will be returning to the courts again for review. So currently they're not listed under the Endangered Species Act, but that may change in the future. Right. And so I kind of want to pause there for a second and just talk about the Endangered Species Act a little bit. Um, I know that there are some mixed feelings about what happens when an animal gets placed on the endangered species list. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit from a conservation standpoint, what an animal's move to that list looks like as far as your ability to work with them and maybe some of the pros and cons to having um, kind of that big move. Yeah, so it is interesting from a conservation perspective because um, the Endangered Species Act is an incredible tool, right? Um, The ability to protect species in this way, to write this legislation, to make sure that, you know, we're going to do everything we can to protect species is great. Oftentimes when species end up on the endangered species list, it's because all of the conservation efforts that have occurred up to that point 
um, all the energy that has gone into protecting that species, um, it hasn't worked. So oftentimes while we see it as this like great thing, you know, like, yay, they're on the endangered species list, we're going to be protecting them. Oftentimes that's because things have already gotten dire. So the efforts here in the bi-state have really been to prevent a listing, to make sure that things never get so bad that we need to put the birds on the endangered species list. And that's been the effort so far. Um, you know, like I said, when, when species are listed, it can be really beneficial, but it can, it can also inhibit some of the good work that's happening on the ground. Um, oftentimes when, you know, you're trying to implement habitat conservation work on lands where there are listed species, there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape and things slow down and oftentimes things don't get done. So it really kind of is a double-edged sword. It's, um, it can be a great tool, but it can also hinder the process. Right. And so what that makes me wonder about is whether all the sage grouse that you're currently monitoring and working with are on public lands or if there's sage grouse populations on private lands and kind of what we can do to um, work with sage grouse populations that maybe aren't as easy to access. Yeah, so in the bi-state area as a whole, about 90% of the land is public land, and that's Forest Service, BLM, state lands, and about 10% is private land. And the bi-state local area working group um, really was formed to make sure that all the conservation work that's happening on the ground is happening across those jurisdictional boundaries seamlessly. You know, what's happening on public land is also happening on private land. And the efforts that are happening on private land kind of go hand in hand with, with what's happening on public land. Making sure that, you know, if there's a conifer treatment project that crosses those boundary lines, you're not just cutting up to that, you know, invisible fence line and, you know, not doing the work on the other side because, Sage grouse don't see those fence lines, you know, they need that, that entire ecosystem, that entire habitat and that entire landscape, um, you know, to, to live and to thrive. Right. That makes sense. Um, so another thing I kind of want to talk to you about are why sage grouse in particular are so important. I know that, you know, there must be a lot of other animals that are also, you know, threatened by a lot of the things that we talked about that threaten sage grouse, but something about the sage grouse must make them stand out as one of the key species in this ecosystem. Yeah, and the answer is basically that that healthy sage grouse populations indicate a healthy sagebrush ecosystem, and a healthy sagebrush ecosystem is crucial for Western wildlife and for Western communities. Uh, as I mentioned before, this is one of the largest habitat types in the U.S. So when we take action to conserve sage grouse, we're actually protecting a whole lot of land. Um, biologists refer to sage grouse as an umbrella species, and that's because conserving the varied and big country that sage grouse need provides benefit to a number of other species, including pygmy rabbits and sage sparrows, mule deer, elk, pronghorn you know, more than 350 species of sagebrush-associated wildlife kind of all take shelter under the umbrella of the sage-grouse. So when you protect sage-grouse, uh, you're protecting them as well. And sagebrush ecosystems are also really important for rural communities. Uh, you know, the Native American tribal members that have lived here since time immemorial and the ranchers that make their living in this ecosystem and for the people that are drawn to visit places like this, for the recreational opportunities they provide, you know, that might include hiking, bird watching, fishing, hunting, and a host of other activities that people do in this area. 
you know, basically a healthy economy and a healthy ecosystem is really inextricably linked. So ultimately, when we talk about sage-grass conservation, what we're really talking about is conservation of the West, because benefits to sage-grouse are benefits to those 350 additional wildlife species and to the people that live and work and recreate in sagebrush ecosystem as well. As well. Right. So if we have healthy sage grouse populations, then we have a healthy ecosystem, which benefits all sorts of different people who we might not think typically come together. Um, but I know that one of the interesting things about your position and one of the things that's so cool is that all these different groups of people have come together to work towards this common goal, which I think is something that in our current political climate, we don't always think is happening, but it seems like this is a great example. Um, how have all these different people been able to come together? That's a great question. So there has been a long history of collaborative conservation in the bi-state. And, you know, I've only been working with the group for about three years. So I'm, I'm sure back in the beginning, the group had to do a lot of kind of team building and trust building and establishing, you know, an understanding and respect of how to, co- to coordinate together because there are so many diverse stakeholders that are part of the bi-state local area working group. Um, Fortunately for me, stepping in in the last three years, they are like a well-oiled machine. Like it is incredible how well this group functions, you know. Um, members in the group are include uh, federal, state, and local government agencies, uh, Native American tribal members, nonprofit agencies, as well as private landowners, agricultural producers, and interested citizens. Um, and together, they have really established a locally-led and landscape-level approach to protecting sage-grouse and the habitats they need to thrive. So in 2012, uh, they wrote this Bi-State Conservation Action Plan, which was a really comprehensive plan, and it outlined the strategies and the actions that were deemed necessary to protect sage-grouse. It's, it's kind of the roadmap to conservation. So in, in developing that plan together, you know, despite maybe their differences in background, you know, their differences in politics, their differences in values, this group was really able to sit down and, and kind of create this comprehensive list of things that they were like, well, this is what we knew, need to do to benefit sage-grouse. And we all can agree that we have a goal here to benefit sage-grouse. So they really had that common, that common goal and that common vision in mind. That is really cool to hear. It's such an uplifting idea to think about all this collaboration going on for what seems maybe at first to be for um, a bird that a lot of people haven't even seen before, but really benefits all of these people. And um, I'm sure that there's people who live here on the east side benefiting from this project who haven't even realized that their own backyard is being protected in a lot of ways by this effort to protect the sage grouse. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of those conservation efforts, what does this look like on the ground? Uh, Like on a day-to-day basis, kind of what does your job look like? I know you've had a lot of early mornings recently. Yeah, this spring um, we've been getting out and actually monitoring the bird, uh, which is always a really fun time for me. It's a chance to get out and actually like see the species that you work with, to see the habitat that they live in, which I think is really, really important. but yeah, in my position, I'm, I'm mostly kind of, I don't know exactly how to describe it, except to say that I am kind of the glue between all of these partners. I'm not the one that's out there, you know, doing the work on the ground, but I am the one that's coordinating between, you know, private landowners, uh, people like the Forest Service, the BLM, 
Mono County, all these different stakeholders and making sure that everyone's on the same page and getting work done and completing those conservation actions that are really improving sage-grouse habitat. Awesome. So when you have a field of people going out to monitor these sage-grouse, what are they looking for? Kind of what are the specifics of that monitoring and why is this the time of year when that's most important? So the main way that we kind of monitor sage-grouse and kind of understand how trends are changing year to year are through those let counts that we do in the spring. And that's primarily because that's when, you know, sage-grouse all congregate um, to mate. And they're really visible, you know, when when the males are, are, are doing their mating dance, they're quite showy and they're easy to see on the landscape. Um, so when we go out, we go out at sunrise and count the sage-grouse for around an hour and try to get a total number of how many males and how many females you see out there. And then typically you take that peak day and you can compare it to peak days from previous years and you kind of understand how populations are doing that year and how they're trending over time. And so where are some of the most popular leks? I'm sure that some of our listeners maybe have been to some of these spots without even realizing that they were in um, prime sage-grouse mating territory. Yeah, you know, they extend really all throughout the bi-state, you know, um, up around in Carson City, you know, the Pine Nut Mountains is um, is habitat for sage-grouse through the Bodie Hills, into the Long Valley area, over on the Nevada side, um, even up into the White Mountains is up at those high elevation, you know, mountains. There's sage-grouse all the way up there lecking in the spring. So uh, they're really spread out over the landscape. So we know that this has been a pretty dry winter here in the Eastern Sierra. Do you imagine that that's going to have a big impact on this year's sage-grouse? We do. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, sage-grouse populations, they kind of fluctuate. They really are cyclical, and they tend to trend with the precipitation pattern. So, you know, following a wet, win- a wet winter, you'll typically have kind of this boom of sage-grouse populations. And conversely, following a a dry winter, you kind of have this bust year. And, you know, we're just now finishing up counts for this year, so these results are really preliminary. On the California side, where things tend to be a little bit wetter, counts aren't looking so bad. On the Nevada side, numbers are definitely down this year. Yeah, I know that a lot of people who are listening are going to be noticing that things are Um, The snow is melting out pretty quickly over on the east side this year, and I imagine that there's a lot of animals other than the sage-grouse that are going to be feeling that as well. Um, So kind of moving into the future of the sage-grouse, it seems like some things are going really well, but what are the biggest challenges maybe both that the sage-grouse themselves are facing and kind of of your job, of your position, of those conservation efforts? I think the biggest challenge that sage-grouse are facing in the future it's kind of tied to what we were just talking about, you know, those cyclical patterns and the fact that um, we're starting to see warmer and drier years. So these birds are really up against a lot with a changing climate. I think we all are. So there are a lot of unknowns. Um, one thing I do know is that the Bi-State Local Area Working Group will continue their conservation effort. You know, this group is really established and implemented a framework that fosters ongoing problem solving and really proactive engagement. So 
I have no doubt they'll continue to move forward with maintain momentum and they'll continue their work to make sure that sagebrush have an abundant and healthy habitat and they continue to exist as icons of the sagebrush sea. Um, the great thing about having a group that is so diverse is that they bring a bunch of different perspectives and that is really necessary when you are dealing with these kind of complex ecological challenges and things as big as like climate change. So uh, this group is well equipped to, I think, come up with some sustainable solutions to ensure that these birds uh, have the best fighting chance that they can have. Awesome. Well, there's some good news in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering how our listeners can help. What can people do if they want to support sage-grouse in the bi-state area? What can they do to support these efforts or to get involved? There's a number of ways. One way is to become an ECM member. Um, when you become a member, you can direct your membership dues towards supporting sage-grouse conservation efforts. Uh, the other way is visiting the ECO bookstores. You can learn more about sage-grouse. There's a number of resources there about sage-grouse in general and about the sagebrush ecosystem. And you can also visit bystatesagegrouse.com. You can probably learn everything you've ever wanted to know and maybe more about sage-grouse. And there's also a way to contact me there um, through that website if you would like to get involved with the Bystate Log and their uh, conservation efforts. Awesome. That's really cool. I'll put together a blog post um, to go along with this episode, and I can link to all the books and resources that we have in those bookstores for people who want to check out more and put a link to your website so that people can figure out um, ways to get more involved. And um, yeah, which is really cool project. It seems like such a great example of collaboration in a time when maybe that's not the first thing that people think of when they think about um, this area. And yeah, it's really cool to get out and see those sage grouse. As someone who just got to see sage grouse for the first time after living on the east side for a number of years, it was a really, really special experience. It was cold, but it was worth going out to the Bodie Hills uh, bright and early in the morning, or really before it was bright and early, um, to get to see these pretty special birds. It was a really unique experience, and it was really cool to tag along with you. Uh, well, Amy, that was a really cool conversation. Thank you so much for coming on our new show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was great. Thanks to our friends at the Sage Grouse Initiative. We have a fun clip of those famous sage grouse sounds to share with you. Enjoy! thanks to Amy Sturgill for coming on our show today. You can read more about her work at bystatesagegrouse.com. This podcast is a production of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association, partnering with the Forest Service to protect the Sierra Nevada for over 50 years. To learn more about our organization and to support programs like this podcast through annual memberships, visit sierraforever.org. Until next time, I'm Lauren Delaney Miller.